it's evening and you are gathered together with the other disciples in a small room for Passover. This whole time you've been watching Jesus while he sits quietly in the shadows, listening to the idle chatter, watching over those who sit around him and from time to time telling stories about the kingdom of God. As night descends, a meal of bread and wine is brought into the room. And it's only at this moment that Jesus sits forward so that the shadows no longer cover his face. And he quietly brings the conversation to an end by capturing each one with his intense gaze. Then he begins to speak. My friends, take this bread, for it is my very body broken for you. Every eye is fixed on the bread that is laid on the table. And while these words seem obscure and unintelligible, everyone picks up on their gravity. Then Jesus carefully pours wine into the cup of each disciple until it overflows onto the table. Take this wine and drink of it, he says, for it is my very blood shed for you. With these words, an ominous shadow seems to descend upon the room and a chilling darkness that makes everyone shudder uneasily as Jesus continues he says, as you do this, remember me. Most of the gathered disciples begin to slowly eat the bread and drink the wine lost in their thoughts. You, however, can't bring yourself to lift your hand at all. For his words have cut into your soul like a knife. Jesus doesn't fail to notice your hesitation and he approaches lifting up your head in his hand so that your eyes are level with his. Your eyes meet only for a moment, but before you're able to turn away, you're caught up in a terrifying revelation. And in that instant, you experience all the loneliness and pain and sorrow that Jesus is carrying. You see the nails being driven through skin and bone, you hear the crowds jeering and the cries of pain as iron cuts against flesh. And at that moment, you see the sweat that flows from Jesus like blood and experience the suffocation and madness and pain that will soon envelop him. And more than all of this, you feel a trace of the separation that he will soon feel in his own being. And in that little room, which occupies no significant space in the universe, you have caught a glimpse of a divine vision that should never have been disclosed. Yet, it is indelibly etched into the eyes of Christ for anyone brave enough to look. You turn to leave and to run from that place. You long for death to wrap around you, but Jesus grips you with his gaze and smiles compassionately. Then he holds you tight in his arms like no one has held you before. 
He understands the weight that you now carry is so great that it would have been better that you never been born. After a few moments, he releases his embrace and lifts the wine that sits before you and whispers, take this wine, my dear friend, and drink it up. For it's my very blood and it is shed for you. And all this makes you feel painfully uncomfortable. And so you shift in your chair and fumble in your pocket, all the while distracted by the silver that weighs heavy in your pouch. Today is Good Friday. And historically, the church has named it Good Friday because retrospectively, we know what Jesus accomplished on the cross that day. But nothing good happened that day. On this day, two millennia ago, the hopes and dreams of thousands of Jesus' followers were trampled beneath a Roman boot. The events of this day would cause such utter disillusionment among Jesus' disciples that its echo would ripple through time to every Christian from that point forward. It's the absurdity of a God that dies. On Good Friday, Jesus serves us by failing us. Let me explain. Nobody who followed Jesus expected him to die. Even though he's recorded in the Gospels on several accounts saying explicitly that he would be killed, nobody expected him to die because their version for the future required him to be alive. Their vision of success and progress, vision of the kingdom, required Jesus to be something that he wasn't. And it's important for us to explore this still because we still do the same thing. We still place Jesus at the the spearhead of our value system. We still prop him up as the poster boy for our version of the good life. Like left to my own imagine, Jesus appears all deconstructed and edgy tattoos and ready to throw over the patriarchy and flip some tables. But for some, Jesus is a strong man and he's the man our country needs and he's going to stand firm for biblical values and thwart the liberal agenda. For others, Jesus is an inappropriately chill life coach trying to help you live your best life. And the truth is that these are all caricatures of Jesus. It's a funhouse mirror image. There are elements of the real Jesus in there, but no one representation is actually him. And the disciples had the same problem. They envisioned Jesus to be the Messiah, the one who would overthrow the Roman government and reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation and reign from Jerusalem as the true king of the earth. Their vision of the future required Jesus to be a warrior and a conqueror, and a fighter. So how did Jesus respond? He failed them. He intentionally failed them. He even says when Peter draws his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane that he could call down legions of angels to come to his defense, but he doesn't. He intentionally does nothing. He intentionally allows himself to be captured and beaten and mocked 
and spit upon and stripped naked and humiliated and crucified and stabbed and suffocated. He failed on purpose. He purposefully allowed profound disillusion to fall heavy on everyone who followed. This is why the crowds who just a week earlier shouted, blessed blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and now we're calling out for his blood. They would say, crucify him. If you're really the son of God, get yourself off the cross, they would sneer. Look, he's calling out to his father, they would mock. They would harass him and hurl insults as Jesus heaved himself up over and over again to try to capture one, just one more breath. This is why Peter, who just moments before Jesus' arrest, would tell him, I'll go to, death, to my death with you. And then he would just disappear and disavow his Lord. This is why as Jesus hung on his cross, almost none of his closest friends came to comfort him. His mother had to watch her boy naked as the day he was born have his his nude body devoured by the bloodthirsty eyes of the mob. I imagine that images must have flashed through Mary's mind of holding her, holding her naked baby still wet with the fluids of birth as she watched her child now being paraded through the Jerusalem streets naked and covered in his own blood, carrying the instrument of his own execution. God damn this day. God damn this dark day. And we call it good. Jesus was good. Jesus did good. Jesus inspired good. He embodied good. And we murdered him. We murdered him because... He failed to be what we thought we needed him to be. He failed to be the Messiah that people wanted. He failed to be the warrior that Israel needed to overthrow the Romans. He failed to be the king that people needed to finally put the nations under his feet. He failed to be the leader that people needed to catapult themselves into a place of power over, his, over the neighboring tribes and nations. And guess what? We're no better. Even with the crucifixion and resurrection as context, we still abandon Jesus when he appears to fail us. We still sell him out for some shekels of silver. We still betray him and send him to his execution. When Jesus fails to be the Messiah that we want, then we typically respond in one of two ways. We either double down on our Jesus and insist 
that despite the evidence to the contrary, that my Jesus, my version of Jesus is the right Jesus. My Jesus is the Jesus that sits on the throne and therefore my values, my interpretation of the scriptures, my desires are superior to yours. And it's my enemies that are gonna be condemned and my allies who history will remember as the good guys. So assimilate or be erased. We sell the real Jesus and we use those 30 shekels to buy ourselves a version of him that suits us best. Or we realize that the Jesus we thought was there is just a figment of our imagination. A projection of what we perceive to be the best parts of ourselves. He's just me with no vices. He's just me with superpowers and an unflinching commitment to my personal values. And he's fake. So we abandon him. All the while, the real Jesus hangs there right in front of our face. He could save himself. He could defeat his captors. He could mend his own wounds the same way he restored the broken flesh of the lepers. He could revive himself the same way he roused Peter's mother-in-law from her coma and raised Lazarus from the dead, but he doesn't. He just dies. Why does he do that? Why didn't he save himself? It's because it wasn't the Roman emperor that he needed to kill. It was your fake Jesus that needed to die. It was your deified self that needed crucifying. That caricature, that funhouse mirror image, that bizarro Jesus needed to die before you could ever see the real Jesus. You must be crucified with the Christ so that it's no longer your fake Messiah that lives. Then the true Christ may finally be manifested in you. On the cross, Jesus is saying to us, I'm not who you want me to be. I'm not who you hoped I would be, but I am who I am, and that's better. On the cross, Jesus dumps disillusionment on us like a truckload of bricks, crushing any hope that we might become the powerful ones, the prominent ones, the respected and the revered ones. And in doing that, he saves us from ourselves. And as his body goes into the grave, so too go in all of our delusions about this fake Messiah, about our fake God. And after three days of soul-stripping recalibration, Jesus can finally emerge from the tomb and say, do you see me now? 